Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now is James Sweeney, Chief Economist at Credit Suisse, Head of Global Fixed Income there uh, as well. Great to see you uh, here in our Bloomberg 1130 uh, studios and James, let me just start by by asking you a bit about the Fed meeting yesterday. The degree to which your expectations uh, were met. Let's talk about the balance sheet uh, in in a few moments. Uh, but first, when it came to the to the outlook and uh, what they had to say, how did it jive with what you were expecting? Yeah, well, I I think the Fed was stoical in the sense that uh, they they were not uh, they were not moved by the recent weakness in inflation and the decline in some of the inflation expectation indicators. They did acknowledge it, uh, but they went ahead and pulled the trigger on their hike, of course, and, and laid out that balance sheet policy. Um, they still expect inflation to drift up towards their uh, their targets over the medium term, but they, they did reduce the path of that increase somewhat. So it, it looked uh, it looked safe and, and reasonable. Um, but, you know, I wrote a couple of weeks before the, uh, the, the meeting um, that – the Fed was ignoring the recent weakness in inflation, and I think the market is is really ignoring any any uh, sorry the recent decrease in inflation. I hope I said decrease, <laughs> um, and the market seems to be ignoring any possibility of a, of an increase in inflation, um, you know, a meaningful increase above that that recent average uh, over over the next couple of years. It's, it seems like the market and the Fed are jointly agreeing that inflation is is a horizontal line. Um, right now, and and as a result, um, the the kind of expectations that that exist for where short term rates will be a couple of years out are are you know very low rates, very narrow, um, very narrow path. I mean, mm -hmm. everyone sort of agreed that two three years from now we're going to have uh, short term rates in the mid twos, um, and not much risk of being a lot higher or a lot lower. Um, the options market actually uh, confirms that narrow path which is expected and and I, I think that's I think that's a little risky how do we get to, to this point uh, where as, as you point out I think in a recent note progress toward full employment trumps inflation and uh, global industrial production growth that the Fed is regarding that side of its mandate more than the other yeah well um, as, as I said I, I think the inflation news is being interpreted as a wobble mm. against a kind of more or less horizontal trend. Um, and what's happening in the labor market is labor income has slowed a little bit recently, but it continues to grow. And the unemployment rate is not falling at 85 basis points a year anymore, as it did from 2009 to 2015. Uh, but, it, but it does appear to still be falling. So, you know, we, we could have a three-handle mm -hmm. on the unemployment rate with, within a year. Uh, and in those conditions, um, it's, it's appropriate to, uh, to get short rates up to you know positive in, in, in real terms before long. Uh, the fact that risky asset prices across a broad spectrum of them uh, are, are looking somewhat expensive from a historical perspective uh, is, is, is another reason that um, you know that, that, that policy should be tightening. And, and so now the, the question really becomes the mode of that tightening. 
the sequencing of balance sheet versus uh, versus rate, etc. But you know they've they've now pulled the trigger and they've gotten they've gotten all the way up from zero to twenty five to one to one and a quarter. That's that's a pretty big move, especially given the other uh, developed central banks are, are really not moving rates at all. James Sweeney with us uh, from Credit Suisse. Let me ask you about the, the balance sheet and the detail that we got uh, yesterday, the way in which they intend to do this uh, compositionally and uh, in terms of, of process itself. Uh, was that in line with your expectations as well? And what, is that, what does that tell you? What should that tell investors about the, the path forward here? Um, the, some of the numbers they gave were a little more aggressive than we thought, and I think the amount of detail was sooner than we thought. And, and actually, we did slightly tweak our view in response to the news. Uh, where we now expect the balance sheet normalization to commence in September and the next rate hike not to happen until uh, December. Um, in 2018, we expect two more hikes. So uh, so we're only expecting three hikes over the next uh, 18 months, uh, but the balance sheet normalization to occur at the same time. So specifically, you know, they, they said that they would start out, I, I think it was $6 billion and $4 billion on on Treasury and mortgages where, where they would have a cap on how much runoff they're going to allow. You mm-hmm. know, runoff meaning they're not reinvesting coupons in principle for uh, maturing um, securities. And, and as a result, their balance sheet is going to start shrinking. And then they're going to up it, um, basically doubling that those numbers after three months. And then they're going to yeah. do it again uh, three months after that. And, and so if you go a year out and if, they're, if they do manage to kind of be on a glide path of, of – of uh, of balance sheet change, you know, within kind of a year, year and a half, they're going to be at QE two levels of reverse QE, um, and and the market will have to cope with that. James Sweeney with us with Credit Suisse. Good morning, everyone. Bloomberg Surveillance. David Gurr and I. David, we got to thank all of our team yesterday yeah. for a, a marathon day, yeah. uh, to say uh, the least. And good to have you here, James, this morning on on too many themes. One of the themes that we have is what the financial markets and the bond market is telling James Sweeney. I believe I'm seeing a flattening yield curve. Do you link that to slower GDP, or is it just a separate thing you're not worried about? Well, you know, I, I, think, I think yields are pretty sensitive to, uh, to what's happening in global growth, the news flow, the surprises, the PMIs, all that. Um, we had an unusual period last year where global growth was very weak at the beginning of the year, it recovered throughout the year. Yeah. Yields didn't go up until the election. Uh, it was as if you know seven months of move was concentrated into three or four weeks after the election. And uh, we actually think global growth hit a local peak early this year, January, February, and has been coming off. So you know, given some downside yeah. surprises in U.S. inflation and falling global growth, it's not so surprising that yields came back down again. Um, but I, I think actually. You know, we've got a 280 target on the 10-year at the end of the year. Uh, my colleague, uh, Praveen Korpati, our, our, our rate strategist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think global growth is going gonna, is gonna to pick up. I think the Fed is going to continue to implement its tightening. Um, and I, I think we may be around a temporary low in the 10-year. Right. Was it an ultra-accommodative press conference yesterday? Are, are we beyond ultra-accommodative? As you mentioned, they've done a set of rate increases in the world. I believe the world has not come to an end. The the stance of policy is accommodative. The incremental news from yesterday was somewhat more hawkish than the market expected, but not sufficiently hawkish to to necessarily interrupt the party. I mean, I see the futures are down a little bit this morning on on stocks. Uh, the market will take a little while to digest, but basically, stocks and bonds across the board have been seeing price gains together for months and months uh, as this low. Uh, this easy monetary policy and low real rates have have met with a growing 
U.S. economy and a wobbly but fine global economy. Um, the, the, the question now is uh, could tighter monetary policy, you know, could that trigger higher yields mm-hmm. um, and could it even trigger some, some weakness in, in equity markets and, and risky assets? This has been a very technical market. There's, there's a lot of frustrated traders out there, equity traders in particular. It's been a tough market to trade with, with really these tech stocks leading aggressively and, and uh, the rest of the equity market behaving in, in some odd ways. James, we've got about 30 seconds here. We'll come back with you. But let me ask you how indelible this plan for the balance sheet is. In other words, so with the potential for so much changeover at the Fed, how much credence do you give what we heard yesterday? Yeah, I think there's a good chance that if we get a candidate, you know, outside of Gary Cohn, outside of Janet Yellen, um, that, you know, I would expect a Fed chair to, to obviously um, influence mm. the implementation of the policy. There's, there's nothing to say that, that this, this path um, can't be paused, can't be stopped. Um, you know, I think there are other candidates from Yellen and Cohn. Um, I think Kevin Warsh, for example, is is, is leading candidate. And um, yeah, we will we will see. Um, we will see. It, it it should be it should be interesting. Um, I think the market is going to end up being very focused on uh, on this search uh, sure. for new leadership. And if it's Yellen, no. um, then then we expect this path <clears throat> to continue. Of course. Let's come back with James Sweeney of Credit Suisse. James, I got about eight ways to go here, and I think I'm going to go Y equals C plus I plus G plus NX, and something I didn't talk about course, enough yesterday, which is investment. And the, the the dearth of investment here, there, and everywhere. Yeah. Do you care that commercial and industrial loans have rolled over or any other investment parameter that shows a, a tepidness or weakness? Uh, we care. In fact, we did a thorough piece on that recently. And so what, how do you know I knew to ask? <laughs> Thank you, Tom. But what we found is that uh, is that CNI loans really do very consistently lag what happened to investment last year. And, and so they're really not telling us about anything new. Uh, last year, we had a couple things going on. We had a mining and energy investment slump, which was global. Um, that was definitely weighing. In the U.S., we also had dollar strength weighing on manufacturing investment. Uh, so I'm not so worried about uh, C&I loans. But I, I think on the investment side, there was a brief overshoot in expectations about what CapEx was going to do after the, after the election and when the, when the PMI spiked. Now that the PMIs have come off, I think people are calming down. Um, so we have kind of mid-single-digit expectations for business investment in the U.S. going forward, which is okay. It's not great. It's not a boom. If you get an infrastructure stimulus, if you get tax reform, you know maybe those numbers go higher. But um, but I think the you know the, the the reality of this whole recovery, which is the absence of an investment boom despite very low interest rates. I think that's likely to persist for a while until we find some kind of trigger. I think it's possible, uh, but we haven't had it yet. So investment's okay. It's not a disaster. Um, and the specific shocks from the dollar and from energy are really falling out of the data now. I'm watching the, the reaction here to the uh, the BOE rate decision on, on Top Live on the, the Bloomberg Live blog of, of what's happening. And so they're keeping the interest rate at a quarter percent. Vote was five to three. How big a deal uh, is that divide uh, among policymakers at the, at the BOE? And what does it tell you about the Bank of England's engagement with uh, the UK economy, with economic policy, and with this still ongoing uh, Brexit process in the UK? Well, you're you're always going to have uh, you're always going to have some central bankers uh, who are outside the consensus view. So, um, you know, I, I actually I, I recently read uh, Sebastian Malaby's new book on on Alan Greenspan, 
And it was very interesting on the committee dynamics. I think during the Greenspan era, a um, you know it, it became thought pretty widely that the leaders of central banks just make the decisions and the committees go along. And, and what Malaby detailed was how much effort Greenspan used to put into bringing his whole committee along. It, it takes a lot of work to, to herd these cats. And, and, you know, maybe Carney has some work to do if he's got three dissenters at, at the moment. But most of the time, um, the governors, the chairs get, get their way. So, um, I mean, definitely in the UK, the outlook is a little confusing right now. High inflation, uh, growth rolling over, but unemployment actually pretty low. Um, and a lot of currency moves. So, you know, you would forgive a, a group of central bankers or economists for having different views on where monetary policy ought to be. Well, let's come full circle then. We were talking about Kevin Warsh and uh, Gary Cohn and, and who might be leading this Fed going uh, forward. Given what you were just saying, given uh, what we, we've read in Sebastian Malaby's book, how much determinism does uh, the new Fed chair have? In other words, we're talking about the potential for a personnel turnover and all that that might bring. Uh, are we are we overplaying that, uh, given what the, the committee is able to do? No, I don't think so. I think um, I, I think it's very important who gets the leadership job. Um, and I think whoever accepts the leadership job has to recognize that um, the president is going to be filling the seats around them. So some people are surprised that Janet Yellen is emerging as a as a pretty strong candidate. Um, but even if it's Yellen, it's going to be Yellen with a very different group of governors um, around her. Um, some people would say that why would Yellen take such a job? Mm. But people close to Yellen say that, well, because she's very civic-minded, and if she thinks that uh, if she thinks that she's the best person for the job and it's good for the country, she may go ahead and do it. But I, I think we should definitely respect a wider range of possible outcomes, mm -hmm. given not just the potential change in the chair, but the potential change in those around the Fed. Yeah. Fed governors have been outvoted before. That, that mm -hmm. did happen to Volcker. It can happen. And in the Trump era, uh, it's definitely something that should be on the list of possibilities. Interesting. That's worth having you back on alone. James Sweeney, thank you uh, so much. He is with Credit Suisse. Story on the Bloomberg right now that Bob Mueller is examining whether President Trump sought to slow the probe into net former National Security Advisor uh, Michael Flynn. Good to talk about this here with uh, one Richard Painter, former associate counsel to the president, chief ethics lawyer to George W. Bush, who joins us now, uh, the Ritchie Professor of Corporate Law at the University of Minnesota uh, Law School. Uh, Mr. Painter, great to have you with us here. Help me understand what's changed as a result of this turn, this next chapter in this investigation. Uh, it appears the investigation uh, widens. What's changed? Well, I think it uh, was inevitable that uh, the special counsel would investigate obstruction of justice by the president. Uh, the uh, president, um, uh, in his statements to the Russian ambassador, the news media, uh, you know, adding it all up, it's very uh, clear that he um, certainly was very, very concerned about the Russian investigation when he fired James Comey. And uh, it appears to me that he did fire James Comey because of the Russia investigation, not because of the pretense uh, set forth in the Department of Justice memorandum. And you know, if so, that is a strong case for uh, obstruction of justice. Whether it's a case that the special that the special counsel would want to prosecute or not remains to be seen. But I think it was inevitable that uh, there certainly would be an investigation of uh, whether or not the president uh, 
uh, committed obstruction of justice uh, of the sort that uh, could be prosecuted. How important do you think it's going to be, the, the interview that you mentioned, the interview during which uh, President Trump sat down with Lester Holt of, of NBC News, the tweets that he's made about uh, the circumstances surrounding this, this investigation? What role is all of that going to play here going forward? Well, that's the uh, information that we know of. That's what's public. Yeah. Uh, and I think that what is public, uh, uh, what, again, I think uh, constitutes a, a quite strong case of, of obstruction of justice. But uh, what the special prosecutor will do is talk to uh, others in the administration and find out what the uh, president said privately. Did he talk to other people other than James Comey um, about trying to stop the Russia investigation? Did he talk to other people about uh, what he said to James Comey. Uh, and uh, those are the questions that are going to need to be answered. I, I think if uh, people start to claim executive privilege uh, with respect to that, the special prosecutor is going to have to go to court. And I think it's quite clear out of the United States there is a Nixon case that uh, would involve a criminal investigation. Uh, the claim now, of executive privilege is, is really quite weak. Professor, let me ask a dumb question. Is there a chief White House ethics lawyer in the White House right now? Uh, I believe so, uh, but uh, they, um, uh, they, mm-hmm. they, they seem to have a very different approach to the ethics <laughs> issues than we did in the Bush yeah. administration. Is this lawyer... The Obama is, uh, administration. Is Mr. Kasowitz, just because of time, Professor, is Mr. Kasowitz competent to advise the president in Washington? Um. Well, first of all, Mr. Kasowitz is not the chief White House ethics lawyer. He is not a government employee. He's not on the White House Council staff. So his job is only to advise the president in his personal capacity uh, with respect to the investigation and defending himself against potential criminal charges. Um, Other White House people are hiring their own criminal defense attorneys. And, uh, you know, there's a, a very, very important role for criminal defense lawyers in this situation. Uh, but it certainly isn't uh, to try to advise uh, people uh, going well, forward as to what to do in their official capacity. This was too short. Richard Painter, thank you so much, with Minnesota and the University of Minnesota uh, Law. Uh, we hope to get him back on soon. That was great. Mm-hmm. David, that was really yeah. quite good. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. This is going to be fun. And I don't mean working with David Durham. It's oh, always Tom, fun, which you. is, yeah. It's always fun. <laughs> goes, goes without the measure. Journal of Economic Literature, I was reading it last night, David, mm. because the Yankees were on late. Volume XXXVII, December 1999. Oh, I remember it well. The Science of Monetary Policy, a New Keynesian Perspective. Clarita Gertler. If you read it, you got to read this paper, folks. In fact, you'll probably reread it. Can I borrow your microfiche machine to do that? They lead with a quote from Alan Blinder. Having looked at monetary policy from both sides now, quoting Jody Mitchell, I can testify that central banking in practice is as much an art as science. I would suggest, Richard Clarita, that art was on display yesterday. It is amazing how complex the rationalization has gotten. 
Yeah, well, I think what you're referring to is the fact that we got a rate hike from the Fed, even though the data has been uh, soft. Uh, there's a Fed that says that they're data dependent. Uh, and I've said on this show before, data dependence itself is not a monetary policy. So we saw that in full display. So the data would have suggest pausing, but they hiked. Uh, why did they hike? I think two big reasons. The first uh, is they clearly want to get the balance sheet reduction underway, and they set a, a standard for themselves, which is we can't really think about the balance sheet normalization until hikes are well underway. So yesterday was the fourth. Uh, so I think that I think that was definitely a factor. I think the other factor uh, as well is the fact of the matter is is that their models are telling them policy still accommodative. They're raising rates, but they don't think they're tightening policy. Uh, financial conditions are very easy. So they saw an open door. They took advantage of it. But I must admit, yeah. uh, it created sort of an interesting press conference. Well, I'll say the least. On page four or five of Clarita Gallagher, <laughs> 1999, you walked through the mathematics of the economy, the IS curve, knocked up against what Chair Yellen talked about yesterday, this strange thing called the Phillips curve. Does the math in that paper in 1999 still work? Well, the Phillips curve obviously is a very important part of that analysis, and Chair Yellen herself is an expert on it and made mention of it several times. So far, we're not seeing the traditional Phillips relationship Thank between you. unemployment and inflation. Interestingly enough, uh, we are seeing some evidence of the Phillips curve effect uh, in wages uh, once you adjust for the fact that productivity is low. But I think the big thing that the Fed's probably noticing, although they didn't dwell on it yesterday, is in January, year-over-year -year core inflation was at one eight very close to 2%, and now it's about 1.5. So it's going in the wrong direction. I think that's probably more of a concern. It's moving in the wrong direction. They hope it's temporary, yeah. but so far, uh, can't tell. Yeah. David, if the kids can't sleep tonight, you mm. can just read in the footnotes from Cl <laughs> Clarita Galley and Gertler. I, you know, footnote 24, is, that's my favorite right there, yeah. footnote 24. Let's borrow your much-loved copy of, of that. Rich Clary, yes. let me ask you about what we learned about the, the balance sheet yesterday and how that changes your perspective on what things are going to be like uh, going forward here. We, we got some numbers, have a better sense perhaps of the, the timetable for it. From an investor's perspective, what does that mean? You know, I think, I think David, it's a good question because I think uh, an underreported fact of the Fed's plan is with these caps they announced, the Fed is still going to be buying treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. So you tell your listeners, they want to shrink the balance sheet. Mm -hmm. Oh, and by the way, every month they're still buying. You think, well, what, you know, that's sort of like I'm going on a diet, but I'm going to, I'm going to have a double, two desserts. Um, and, and interestingly enough, one reason why the bond markets, I think, David, have taken this so well is that essentially as a treasury <clears throat> matures, they're going to replace it with a five- or a 10-year treasury. If you adjust their portfolio for the duration, that is the maturity, it may not be shrinking at all. So one reason the bond market has been pretty relaxed is, you know, this is not a very austere or dramatic uh, uh, reduction in the balance sheet once you adjust for uh, they're going to continue to buy. What was Chair Yellen's message to those who are skeptical about where inflation is right now vis-a-vis -vis the, the Fed's willingness or eagerness to, to keep uh, hiking. The, the word transitory came up, yeah. I, I know. Uh, but how forcefully is she defending that position? Well, she, basically yesterday, David, I'd summarize the one-hour pr pr press conference in two words. She was saying, trust me. Uh -huh. uh, you know, it's a complicated <laughs> that is world. In, that is in Clara <laughs> to Gelly yeah, yeah, yeah. She said, Tr trust me. You know, implicitly, I'm an expert. Uh, I've been doing this for 30 years. You know, 
inflation goes up, it goes down. Uh, trust me, she gave the little analogy about, you know, the arithmetic of the CPI with cell phone uh, prices. Uh, so I think – but I do think that uh, – I don't think that third rate hike that the blue dots indicated yesterday is a slam dunk. I think they will commence the balance sheet process in the fall. But if the fall is under underwhelming as so far the first half of the year has been, they may not get that third rate hike in. Uh, do we get a, a, any better sense of what full employment is to policymakers uh, on the Fed? Well, you know, they keep revising down the unemployment rate, which is consistent with full employment. So three years ago, it was 5.3. Now it's at 4.6, I think. The actual unemployment rate is lower. And I think, David, the pattern has been as unemployment continues to fall and inflation doesn't pick up, they keep revising down. Uh, and that's not – And I, I'm not critical for that. Yeah. You know, as the data evolves, they do need to factor that in. Within trust me. And within the wonderful work that you are acclaimed for, ah. I did a word search. Joe Stiglitz's name is not in there. He has acclaimed with Sandy Grossman about what's the information we have in the market. It, yeah. does, what's the information Chair Yellen or Vice Chairman Fisher or Lyle Brainerd, what's the, the information, the signals that they're getting right now? Arala Grossman and Stiglitz, are they flying blind? Well, that is a classic paper. It's called The Impossibility of Informationally Efficient Markets. You know, you can tell I've read it. But I think, there is an ana- I think there is an analogy, Tom, and it's the, and yeah. it's the following. Are you the, liking the, this girl? The Fed is trying to, to actually navigate and work through a pretty complicated signal extraction problem. And in particular, there's mixed messages. So, for example, bond yields have fallen. Mm-hmm. Now, bond yields can fall for a couple of uh, reasons, uh, and they're trying to distinguish whether or not that's a signal the economy's weakening, or if it's just telling you something that there are negative rates in, in, in the rest of the, the, the world. The other signal extraction problem uh, that they have, of course, is this inflation uh, problem. Is it transitory uh, exactly. or, or permanent? And then financial conditions. Financial conditions are easier. Stocks are higher. Credit spreads are lower. Does that tell them they should hike more aggressively, or does that tell them basically just to take it easy? So it is a pretty complicated problem right okay, now. We've gone graduate school, PhD on everybody out there, and this is really special with Richard Claret of Columbia University and, of course, with PIMCO. So with what you just said, I'm going to go to the Greek letter theta, yeah. which is belief in the time function. Trust me, on the time function, do you have a belief in transitory out to a permanent effect on, in this case, inflation? I mean, do you do you have a knowledge of how to parse between transitory or permanent? Well, or are we just flying blind again? Well, the, the reality, and I've actually done empirical work in this, and I know the literature, the reality is that the econometrics... The econometrics of signal extraction in the real world are actually quite complicated. Thank so you. even though the Fed has 250 PhD economists and does brilliant econometric work, there is a pretty big element of judgment involved as as, as well. And so the sen- it's a combination of statistical models and, and right. sort of gut, gut feeling. In the time that we've got left yeah. then, should we go to a more rules-based Fed away from that gut feel that you just spoke? If we get Marvin Goodfriend as chairman because Claret has too much discretion-based, do we need a more rules Base fed? Well, of course, of you know, my, my, that, that I'm paper, his chops that, right that paper, Claire Galley Gertler, actually proposed what we called a forward looking Taylor rule. So I'm very much in the camp that a rules based approach makes sense. I wouldn't be handcuffed to it, but it's an essential right. input to doing sound policy. Can I, I David, I, 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 I got to say this, folks. When we invented Bloomberg on the economy and Bloomberg surveillance, Al Mayer said to me, You can't do that every show. 
But every once in a while, every once in a while, John Tucker, we go off the rails. Yeah, and we just into did the that surveillance library. Professor Clareda, this will be out for your re-listening pleasure, John. <laughs> this will be out on you can iTunes. Double check for those, those listeners that like. you wrote down. <laughs> <laughs> this will be on iTunes podcast in the Global Wall Street. What you just heard there from uh, Richard Clareda. It was just special. I can't say Theta Thursday. Here. About Theta Thursday. Yeah. I like that. Very good. We'll go with that. Richard Clarence, appreciate you being here. Richard Clarence on Bloomberg 1130 Studios, of course, uh, of PIMCO and Columbia University uh, as well. We'll be talking more about the Fed coming up here with uh, Craig Bishop of RBC yeah. uh, as well. I promise I will tweet out some of what Professor Clarence and I were talking about because it is really important work and the foundations for what is being debated as in the press conference yesterday. That was special. Richard Clarence at PIMCO. is a really interesting, what I'm going to call, political scientist and economist. Diana Furchgott-Roth joins us now with the Manhattan Institute um, for years in support of um, a certain kind of political science, and that's something that many Republicans uh, are, are very comfortable with and Maybe the president as a Republican is comfortable with, and she will join us uh, now. How is the president doing, Diana, just to begin with the idea of Trump fiscal economics? Is it cogent? The president wants to lower spending and reduce taxes, which is a very cogent policy. Absolutely. And it's worked in other countries. It's worked in the United States. And almost everybody agrees that our deficit is too large, our debt is too large. We're passing this on to our grandchildren who have no— I agree. Yeah. I agree. Everyone agrees with this. But the, exactly. did, did, did he—and I, and I mean this with great respect for the debate, folks, and we get tons of mail when Dr. Furchgott-Roth is on with us. When, when he affected his first budget proposal, was that a political document— or was that a Diana Furchgott-Roth document with, with some real meat to it? This was President Trump's view of what the budget should look like, of what the federal government budget should look like. And it had cuts in many places, and it had increases in national defense. And that goes along with what President Trump proposed during his campaign. So it was a, it was a document aligned with his policy promises during the campaign. And I should just say, I am not doctor. I'm just Diana Furch. <laughs> I have an MPhil in economics from Oxford. Oh, very good. Excuse there me. You See, go. that's I, what you get from someone that. like that's Oxford. <laughs> Everybody else is walking around all day. I'm a doctor. I'm a doctor. Excuse <laughs> well, me. Doctor. We try to make note of that. I do agree with with uh, Diana that that should well, be Well, it's just I don't mistake. want to be on your show under false pretenses. Very, no, good. Well, very good. Very good. Diana, excuse me. I'm on this show under <laughs> false pretenses. David, save me. Let me ask you just about the, the degree. Are there there are those who complain that the president drafted this document in, in a vacuum. He wasn't thinking about what to, what Congress would think of it, what Republicans in Congress in particular would think about it. I look at the reception that it got on Capitol Hill, and there were a good quantity of Republicans, fellow Republicans, uh, who weren't happy with it. How problematic is that? In other words, he's laying out the strictures for what he wants. Should he have had more political awareness about what was more possible? All, all presidents lay out their wish list for a budget, uh, and then it's up to Congress and the president to negotiate over what finally comes out. I don't think you could think of any congressional budget 
uh, over the past half century that's come out exactly the way the president asked for. So uh, President Trump's budget is not at all unusual. It's his wish list. It's his vision as to where the economy should go and where the budget should go. Does he, does he have enough uh, awareness of the, the funding deadline that's coming up? We haven't heard a lot of clarity from this White House about uh, the debt ceiling, say, its approach to the, to the debt ceiling, or indeed its approach to the September uh, 30th deadline. Does he, do his colleagues need to come out more forcefully here to say what the White House's position on all of that is? President Trump has an excellent set of economic advisors. Gary Cohn, head of the National Economic Council. My friend Kevin Hassett will be uh, uh, starting off as chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. I'm sure they have fully made him aware of all the deadlines. Diana, does he need to be more incremental? I mean, so much of the liberal uh, critique of of the Trump budgets in discussion so far, is it just too much, too hard, too soon, too abrupt? Is there something to be said for gradation? I think that this this proposed budget has this budget has been maligned. First of all, people say it cuts spending. It doesn't. It raises federal spending by about 1.7 trillion over the next uh, 10 years. It says it cuts Medicaid, and uh, no, it raises the amount of money spent on Medicaid over the next 10 years. Uh, some functions of government that were personally perfectly reasonable. Uh, 30 or 40 or 50 years ago, such as the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, uh, are no longer reasonable in light of all the multitude of radio and TV stations uh, that we have right now. Why should it be the government's role to fund uh, television and radio when there's shows like yours uh, that do fine without government money? So I think that a budget should always be a time of looking over what the government role should be in in light of changes in the economy and have people jump up and down and say we need a government radio and TV station. Yes, well, we might have needed one 50 years ago. We certainly do not need one now. That's not something that taxpayers should have to fund. Diana, I'm going to ruin your uh, morning and come back and talk about health (laughs) care. Diana Firthgott-Rotz is with us with the Manhattan uh, Institute. Diana, let me give you an open question to get the conversation going. David Gurr is poised to pounce. How close are we to socialized medicine? Oh, we're not, we're not close to socialized medicine, I would say. Uh, I would say that uh, we can see that the Obamacare exchanges are crumbling. We have United Healthcare pulling out, Aetna, Anthem pulling out. But I don't think that single payer is going to be replacing uh, the Obamacare exchanges. We're probably going to have more competition, more choice for consumers. That's what people want. That's what the Senate is working on right now. Uh, that was in the House bill. Where is your, your optimism for that uh, happening? We, we look at the congressional calendar, how compressed it is, how full it is, uh, and we see the, the Senate's unwillingness to take up the House bill uh, as the starting point for, for what it's going to, to ultimately uh, draft. Where does your optimism when it comes to health care come from? Well, Senator Mitch McConnell is crafting his own bill, uh, which is going to be ready around July the 4th, he says, or perhaps later. Uh, Senator McConnell is an extraordinarily uh, smart man who knows parliamentary procedure, and I'm sure that uh, between House Speaker Ryan and Majority Leader McConnell, uh, they can get it done because this is what voters elected them to do. They were elected on a platform of repealing 
Obamacare. Premiums are rising 25 to 50 percent every year. It's unsustainable. Insurance companies are dropping out. United Healthcare, Anthem, Aetna. Okay, so give me the. I want the. I'm really fascinated by this, folks. If it's 16 or 17 percent of GDP, and every single guest from Uwe Reinhardt to, to Diana Fritzkoth Roth says we got to fix it, what's your prescription? given the realities of 2018 society? Well, the, uh, the prescription is that insurance companies should be allowed to offer the plans that people want to buy, which is not the case right now. Right now, each insurance company has to offer the same plan with the same offerings, so there isn't any competition between them. If I want to buy a plan that just covers major expenses, such as falling off my bike in traffic when I bike to work, or getting cancer or a heart attack. I'm not allowed to do that. I have to buy a plan with maternity care, mental health coverage, drug abuse coverage, all these bells and whistles that I don't necessarily want. Well, of course, this is raising the price of health insurance, and we need a different system, just like with auto insurance. We can do auto insurance because people think about auto insurance. No one ever says, I'm losing my job. I'm going to lose my auto insurance. No, because you buy it outside the system. You have a choice of plans. You have a choice of deductibles. You can have collision. Uh, you know, you, you, and we can do the same kinds to, of things. To be fair, though, I have to buy it. In order to get a license, I have to prove that I have auto insurance. Yes, but you don't have to buy a very expensive plan that, uh, that has, um, uh, changes your oil, that, uh, that pays for changing your oil, pays for routine maintenance. That's what you have to buy for health care. And uh, I do agree that in the new health care bills, there should be a penalty for not having coverage. Otherwise, you're going to have people game the system and just pick up the insurance when they have... Uh, um, when they have a problem. And there are protections against that in other markets, like you can't just buy home insurance when your house is on fire. You can't just buy car insurance when you're engaged, when, when you have a major crash. It should be the same with health insurance. We um, uh, have been talking about monetary policy all morning in light of uh, the, the Fed meeting yesterday. Let me ask you about uh, fiscal policy last week, uh, the, the White House christened last week uh, as infrastructure uh, a week. How optimistic are you that we're going to see some sort of fiscal package here within, uh, within the year? Uh, do you think that the White House is prioritizing that enough? You mean, uh, uh, you mean an infrastructure package? Indeed, indeed. A, the, the, the trillion-dollar plan that the president discussed uh, in that speech before joint session of Congress. Well, the trillion-dollar plan uh, also means reducing barriers to uh, private sector companies building infrastructure. That's a large part of the plan. The president is very serious about uh, reducing all the duplication that there is in the permitting. He came out with a huge pile of uh, environmental impact statements that were used for a connector road between I-95 and 270 and said it was too big. He's absolutely right. That raised the price of doing that road, of building that road. So now the tolls on that road have to be higher than they would be otherwise, reducing the ridership. These regulations are really getting in the way of uh, private companies building infrastructure. And a large part of the president's plan, as he said, is going to be encouraging public-private partnerships, reducing regulations, encouraging the private sector to build its own infrastructure, getting out of the way. When you look at public-private partnerships, what's the, the role of them in improving or building on our infrastructure here in the, in the U.S.? Is that the, the end goal, to move to that realm entirely? What role should, should public-private partnerships play when it comes to infrastructure? 
Well, the end goal should be moving towards a situation where they are much more private and much less public, but in situations where uh, the federal government actually owns the assets, such as the bridge or the highway or the airport, uh, then uh, the federal government has to do some kind of permission, some kind of agreement to allow the private sector to invest. But there should be the maximum private sector investment possible. I look at what is going on here now in the cacophony in the White House. Have you spoken to the president uh, uh, recently, Diana? I have never spoken to the president. I was part of his team, but not everyone on his team spoke to the president. Okay, well, that's fair as well. What would be your prescription for the White House to get a more cogent budget plan, fiscal plan linked with all the other distractions out there? I think that the White House is uh, producing these budget plans, and I would suggest that the next step is for Congress to actually take them up and implement them. It's Congress that's the bottleneck. It's people who mm -hmm. are saying Congress, and you said it earlier in the program. Mm. How is Congress going to pass tax reform? How is it going to pass health care reform with the few legislative days left? Well, I suggest that Congress uh, take part of the August recess and stay in Washington to work on these items and also move the process through faster. Yesterday, uh, it, the, due to the extremely tragic shooting of uh, Steve Scalise, uh, there was very little done, uh, which is understandable. But Congress needs to make up that time and move these bills through. There's also yeah. uh, debt ceiling problems, budget. There's many things to do, infrastructure. Well, let's leave it there. Diana, thank you so much. Diana Fritschko-Throth uh, is with the Manhattan uh, Institute. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.